Welcome everybody to the Working Theory episode one. This is going to be on the inherent laws of creation. This is part one of two, um, maybe part three. Who knows what I'll record here, but a couple disclaimers. This is coming off of YouTube. I'm actually converting all of my YouTube videos to this podcast. So each of those until we catch up to uh, the next recorded one are going to be a little intro from me. So welcome to part one of the inherent laws of creation. We got some background noise in this one. I think I had the AC unit running, but regardless, I hope you guys enjoy this episode. We're going to have more stuff coming out very soon. Uh, should be doing weekly episodes. So thank you for joining. Let's stick into the episode and I appreciate you guys. I want to talk about two aspects of Jesus today. Now, there is an ever unfolding amount of literature and revelation about Jesus, especially as we understand more of a historic context about what he did, when he did it, why he did it. And that information is freely available. But today I want to talk about two aspects of Jesus's life and his ministry and his teaching that have to do with the the legal aspect of God, the legal aspect of the administration and the design and the template with which he made creation, uh, with which he made humans, this earth, how we interact uh, with the spirit, particularly. Um, and the two things I'm going to talk about today, one is the Eucharist, or the taking of wine and bread in remembrance of Jesus, and the second is a verse on where two or more gathered I am present. And essentially what I want to do is show that there is a legalistic framework in which things of creation work, whether powers of good or evil, powers of heaven or the powers of darkness, and why that matters so profoundly. So uh, there are powers and legalistic avenues and loopholes, whatever you want to call them, that the principalities, demons in play, um, and the old demons, the ancient gods, as they were referred to, lower, you know, lower G, lowercase g, how they are operating in the world now. Um, I'm sure later I'm going to get into a worldview episode where I talk about the difference between the mystic, more subjective, phenomenological perspective that the ancients had on our world versus the more current reductionist modern uh, view that we've that we've taken and the more objective approach of sciences and religion as a whole and what that does to uh, influence our way of thinking now about spiritual things about these matters but that'll be in a later episode for now uh, we'll suffice it to say those things have changed and we see these, um, we see everything with a very subjective lens now. Everything is very individualistic and less tribal focused, less community focused. Whereas it used to be what happened for one person happened for all. And everyone was for better or worse, uh, communally partaking or, um, engaging in, in things that they knew how to, had a part to play in the whole. Whereas now everything is individualistic, very subjective, zoomed in, lens-specific on where every person is, and it's created a fragmented view of reality that, um, in, in, a, in a sense, is almost less magical, less of a miracle. 
um, especially in light of what Jesus did. So I want to talk about the Eucharist and the negative implications of that with an evil framework, and then also the invocation of Jesus and communion with his spirit, uh, where it says, where two or more gathered in my name, I am present, and how the enemy has used that. So essentially the idea is that when God created this um, material paradise, as it's referred to in ancient texts, he did so with a legalistic, not only understanding, but implementation uh, throughout the framework, the lattice work of all geometry, all matter, all energy, and that the violation of such legalistic, such legal, such law, the violation of these laws um, inherently earns you death, um, and not just death of the physical body, but uh, you begin to no longer exist in this universe, you begin to uh, subsist, sub-exist, and um, it's almost like a, uh, an abscess of energy. You become a, a parasite or a tumor on the universe as you violate these laws, and you are no longer then able to be grafted into um, the, the family of God. And we see evidence of this, these cardinal sins, these laws that have been violated, almost like a heaven's felonies, with the fallen angels, the Rephaim, the demons that, um, that fell, and it is explicitly stated there is no pardoning for their sins. They will burn in the lake of fire. There seems to be, um, there's this word associated with them called wicked, um, to no longer be on the path of God. And it literally means to graft yourself into darkness, to subsition, not existence, if subsition is a word, but to subsist and no longer exist, but you are under existence, um, you're out of the way of God, and the way of God is, is life. And even evil entities will abide by these laws that were grafted and, and implemented into existence in order to exist while they carry out their nefarious or uh, malevolent or malicious, whatever you want to call it, uh, agendas. And I'm going kind of quick here, so I'll try to slow it down for the next bit here, but essentially, when God created the universe, the spiritual entities therein have uh, an explicit understanding, and the higher up you are in the spiritual totem pole, the more you understand the explicit, not implicit, but the explicit nature of these laws and how to um, abide by them and not violate them. Now, something interesting here that I'll just go ahead and point out to segue into what I'm talking about is that the nefarious, uh, malevolent, the malevolent beings and entities that are spiritually giving marching orders to the, the Illuminati, Freemasons, what have you, um, those cardinal families who, who have disseminated and, uh, and propagated and ruined Earth for the last six to 7,000 years, um, they all are doing so under a legalistic framework where they're technically abiding by these laws that that allow them to continue doing what they're doing. And I'll explain what some of those are. But they are also breaking laws. Uh, for instance, the Bible says in the New Testament that those who ch hurt the children of God, it would be better if a millstone were tied around their neck than essentially with the punishment that they will receive for doing that. A lot of the rights and laws that God created and implemented in existence have to do with blood and what, what blood is, and it's the life essence passed from a father to a son. When you violate blood, you're viola violating life force, and a lot of these ritualistic, legalistic things have to do with blood. And so what we have now is the malevolent powers, the cabal, the Illuminati, 
Freemasons, whatever you want to call them, uh, and, the, and the families I won't name here, like 13 or so families, some more chief than others, but still all evil. They are using children's blood to accomplish their means. And the more nefarious and the more, the more evil they, they can get with torturing the innocent, um, the more power in a short-term way is gained by them in evil. Uh, for their magic, for their uh, rites, their rituals to invocate and to uh, commune with spirits like Molech, Baal, Inanna, Ishtar, these different uh, ancient principalities. Marduk, I think, is still one that's, that's active. Um, and what I want to point out today is that Jesus did not, you know, we have this idea of Jesus, and it's almost in a limited understanding or ignorant understanding that we kind of take this point, this, this side, but that Jesus and the Lord can accomplish anything, that Yahweh can accomplish anything just because he wants to. And while I believe that is true, being that all creation flows from him and in an instant can rewrite the laws of physics or rewrite the law of um, actually really any law that has to do with physics or creation or the flow of energy or anything, the Lord doesn't choose to assert his sovereignty by doing that. But it's almost more of a miracle that he works together all things for his good while abiding in this framework that he implemented, that he set up. Uh, and so I'm going to go over a short, um, the short summation of how powers of evil use uh, something like the Eucharist, you know, where God, where Jesus said, here's, here's wine as my blood and, and bread as my body and to take them in remembrance of me. And then also this uh, verse that I mentioned, where two or more gathered, I am present. I'm going to go over how the evil forces used that and how Jesus, by using the same legal framework, did something much greater than, than we can really comprehend. Uh, and it would keep philosophers busy for a while to try to figure out how deep this, this goes. But I want to give this to you as knowledge for you to use and for you to, you, uh, for you to realize the greatness of Jesus and the over-encompassing power of Jesus, because we are going to be talking about discerning with Jesus in this, in this day and age. And that's an important topic that I haven't begun to scratch the, the edges on, but it goes deep and it's necessary. Today though, uh, I wanna get into this. So essentially, we'll go with the, uh, the Eucharist first. So in the ancient world, the, it was mainly a pagan practice, but they revered their dead. They revered their ancestors, the people who had fallen before them in their family line, and they erected uh, essentially altars to continue the remembrance of these people. And they were called domens. They're, they're all throughout the ancient world. Some sites, some localized sites have thousands of these. And there, there are places where altars were erected so that a people, a family could go back at least once a month and bring food to their dead so that they could continue in the afterlife in a almost t like more bougie, posh way. Um, and they would have to offer their food, their wine, their wine-soaked bread, to these ancestors who they almost revered as gods. And the idea is it was really demons. It was spiritual entities taking part in these meals. Uh, though I believe they did have a knowledge of the afterlife and what that entailed, I don't think they had a full understanding of who they were actually giving this food to. And so there is this legalistic thing that if you continue to supply food in remembrance to a fallen or deceased ancestor, you would keep the remembrance alive and that when you stopped uttering their name, they died. And it was something to do with posterity and your own blessings generationally being negated, being forgotten. 
And so even when Abraham left his homeland and, you know, basically at some point forsook the, the statues of his ancestors, uh, he left them in the home by proxy. It was a big thing because it was like you're for, you were forsaking the religion that you were born into, which was a very widespread religious movement, not just among pagans, but Hebrews at the time, um, ancient Hebrews. And this has since been changed. So, so they had a legalistic way to keep the remembrance of the dead alive. What Jesus did that was figured into this, this, um, the mechanic of this is that he said, take this wine, take this bread in remembrance of me. He didn't say, offer it to me. Instead, and you'll see this in the next analogy I'm going to use, he offered himself. The second key point is that Jesus didn't die. And so what happens is when Jesus died and rose again, he grafted us into this everlasting life. And instead of having to sacrifice and give up our sustenance to maintain his life, he said, I'm giving up the very thing that makes me, my blood and my, my body, and I'm giving it to you in remembrance of me. There were a lot of gods and maybe still are in paganism that were ancestrally, ancestrally, not ancestrally, but ancestrally kept alive by the offering of food. I don't know if any of those traditions or anyone from 2,000 years ago is still remembered, but the truth is Jesus is still remembered. And Jesus is still honored and revered and remembered by taking bread and wine in his, in his memory, of his living memory on earth at least. But he is still living in heaven. He is still alive and well. Um, another interesting point that I realized recently is he said, I will not take wine again until, until the time that I come again, until the kingdom of, of God is on earth. And so... As far as sobriety goes, it's been like 2,000 years that Jesus has gone without wine. I think that's pretty impressive. But anyway, so that's, that's one example. I just want to, again, introduce you guys to the legalistic um, framework that is in creation and how God doesn't choose to absolve himself of responsibility toward it, what he created, but he actually abides by it and conquers it in a greater way. So to summarize, the ancient demons or ancestors demanded food and wine in order to continue their their post-death livelihood, Jesus said, take this in remembrance of me and live with me. Not offer it to me, but I'm offering it to you. So Jesus, and again, this is a very, this is founded on the fact that a living thing keeps things living in the Bible, in history. For Jesus to say, my blood and my body are enough to continue giving you life in remembrance of me, meant that he had no plans of dying. And he was so pure and so spatially and temporally evident and existent that we could continue living with these things uh, of his body, of his blood, and the access to that. So it's about access. It really is about access, which gets me into the next point. The malevolent powers at play will essentially, uh, to invocate, to, to commune with Molech, Baal, whoever, to get their marching orders for the next nefarious thing that they're gonna carry out their next agenda, they will use the blood of children in order to open up a temporary gateway to commune with that lowercase g, God, that spirit, that entity, that principality, that demon, even if it's Satan. And what's fascinating, though this is evil and this isn't something to like, you know, make light about, is that the blood of a child is, is the most innocent thing as far as humankind goes. They know that. They are torturing and, and, and mutilating innocent children in order to get their blood in a state of fear 
in a state of sacrifice to open up these channels where they talk to these spirits for 20 to 40 minutes tops. It takes two or more witnesses. You have to have two um, conductors of this ritual in order to commune with these evil spirits. So you'll have at least two hooded men, black robes, sacrificing or otherwise harming, I won't say how right here, but otherwise harming young children to open up this gateway. And no matter how pure and innocent that child's blood is, and, and Lord bless them, whoever they are, wherever they are, however they're being hurt now, however they've been hurt in the world, alive or dead, we, we do bless them and pray blessings over them. Those children can only open that gateway for 20 to 30, 40 minutes. And they look for very special, very pure, very resistant children in order to do these rituals with because they can open that gateway for longer. The powerful thing is when Jesus said, where two or more gathered in my name, I am present. The thing that he did, again, that Molech cannot do, that Baal cannot do, that Ishtar, Anana, Jezebel, none of these spirits can do, is that he opened the gateway himself with his own blood. He said, I am the lamb for the sacrifice. I am the child of God for the sacrifice. I'm going to open this in a way that all people can commune with me. Now, what I want you to grasp when I said at the beginning of this video how powerful the blood of Jesus is, what I want you to grasp is that these children who are innocent can only open this thing for 20 to 30 minutes. Again, 40 minutes at tops, 45 minutes. Jesus' blood is so pure, so innocent, so blameless, so worthy, so good, so heavenly, so cosmic and holy, that when he said, where two or more gather together in my name, I am present. He, through his blood, did that retroactively. He went back into the gates of hell and redeemed those, those saints that were there. He did that for all time after him, all years. And he did that geographically for all space, or at least for, for earth specifically. But every, every bit of space that we're concerned with, his sphere of influence expanded to. This is extremely powerful because when you have an invocation rite or ritual for these negative spirits, you only have that communion in a localized space, no bigger than half a football field. Everyone's gathered together. I don't know this from firsthand experience. I know this from, from the, the studying I've done. And you only have it for less than an hour. Jesus opened a portal with his blood being as holy as it is that spans all time all space and there's no way to close that bridge if you meditate on that long enough you start to realize how powerful the blood of Jesus is I'm not doing it justice here I could write a poem about it later but I wanted to leave that with you so the three things I guess to understand is when you violate the laws of God, when you make felony on a heavenly level, you begin to lose your existence. When you commit those cardinal sins, and I'm talking little s sins, I'm talking hurting children, defiling God's seed. When you do that, you willingly, because you can't do it unwillingly, you willingly remove yourself from existence. The second point is that there's a legalistic way things are set up both the enemy and Jesus abide by those laws. You would do well to start studying what those laws are, to make yourself aware of how God operates. Because the understanding of that 
brings forth good fruit. There's a lot of things we miss in the Bible because we didn't understand the, the laws that were in place at the time in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament, why Jesus did certain things he did. We don't have an understanding or a context for it. With diligent study, with meditation on the Holy Spirit, it says the Holy Spirit will come and remind you of all truth. Teach and remind you of all truth. That is our lot as inheritors of what Jesus did. That's, that's our lot as his children. Give in to his revelation because there are things you may be missing that apply to your life, your deliverance, your children, your parents, your family, your friends, your ministry. That if you go about blind, choosing to be ignorant to the inner workings of the law of God and how these things permeate all existence, you may be missing fundamental truth, revelation that could set you free, that could be part of your ministry that you've never fathomed yet. And the third point, and we'll get into more of this in future, future episodes, but Jesus is more than you can comprehend. Aside from the evil side of the world, he's the only uncontested saint, avatar, son of God that's ever come and is revered in all religions. There isn't a single religion that speaks ill of him. Even the Hindu saints, Paramahansa Yogananda, Sri Yukteswar, the Hiri Mahasaya, they all talk about who Jesus is and are baffled by him, but as a fully realized son of God. I mean, that's the least he is because he is the fully realized son of God the fully embodied personage of God on earth and the cosmic layout and timeline and the deliberation behind every single thing he did is beyond fathoming. But that Jesus loves you. And it would, just like I said earlier, to learn his laws is deep, but to learn his love for you, to learn the foundation of why all those laws were made the way they were is deeper. That's a soul healing work to learn how Jesus loves you. So that's my message for you today, at least on this. We'll get into more stuff in the future. Thank you for listening. Subscribe, like this video. It helps me out and feel free to leave things in the comments. I want to hear from you guys. Much love.